Good morning and welcome. My name is Raina Wells, and I'm Acting Director of Business Affairs and Research at Ontario Media Development Corporation. On behalf of OMDC, I'm pleased to welcome you to this year's um, first in the series of our Digital Dialogue Breakfasts. I want to thank you all for coming out this morning and also to thank our panelists, Karen Mazurkiewicz, Noah Ganner, Andrea Teolis, and Manfred Becker for taking the time to be here to share their insights with us. And I also wanted to recognize that we have an OMDC board member in the room this morning, Adam Kaplan. Is, I see him at the back. Thanks, Adam. For those who don't know OMDC, we're an agency of the Government of Ontario. Our mandate is to build Ontario's creative economy and more specifically to grow um, and develop the book and magazine publishing, film and television, music and interactive digital media industries. We do that through a range of services, grants, tax credits, and events like this one. This morning's topic is using data visualization to tell your story. Our moderator is Karen Mazurkiewicz. Karen is an interactive media specialist who has worked on marketing and communication strategies for many digital media companies in Canada. Last year, she created DataViz Labs to build interactive visualizations for a number of different clients. Karen is also an advisor at Mars Discovery District and has authored reports on innovation for the Canadian International Council and the University of Waterloo. Previously, Karen spent a decade as a senior journalist for the Wall Street Journal in Asia and the Financial Post in Toronto, where she covered financial services business innovation and technology. Please join me now in welcoming Karen Mazurkiewicz and our panelists, Noah Ganner, Andrea Teolis, and Manfred Becker. Thanks so much. That introduction looked a lot shorter on page. <laughs> um, I was actually surprised a little bit um, to be asked by the OMDC to talk about data visualization, which is great, though it talks so much about media disruption and how synergies are and, and different types of, of media are coming together. I actually um, came at this through a very traditional path, as you heard, through journalism. And journalism was really the first uh, media to really embrace what I would call uh, data visualization. <laughs> through infographics and what we used to call charticles. Like rather than writing an article, you would write a charticle um, as a way to tell stories. Um, it's now creeping very much into the interactive space and um, really into entertainment now, as you're going to see today. Um, before we start, though, I'd like to get the definition of data visualization um, you know, to you right away because I think there's a lot of confusion about it. It's been often used to describe infographics, um, but really I think it's about making sense of big data, taking Excel spreadsheets and making sense of the numbers. And I think what started a few years ago is simple infographics in, um, on, that you would see in journalism and on websites has become much more dynamic and interactive now. And I think of it more as information and visuals that users can actually engage in. Um, so today we're very lucky because you have before us this whole spectrum of usage of data visualization. So at one end of the spectrum we have um, Noah Jenner from BookNet Canada. BookNet has a very simple front end. So if you go on their website, it's what I would call infographics, very straightforward, um, using to tell a few data points about the, um, the book industry. But really what they have at the back end is that enormous um, big data engine um, and, and that in forms their industry about trends in, in book selling and what we would call data visualization as market intelligence. So that's really how, again, it, besides journalism, data visualizations really come out of the market intelligence um, portion of, of corporations. It's also very popular at the Mars Discovery District right now where I'm working um, and they're looking very much at taking big energy stories and telling that stories through that. Then next we have on the stage Andrea Teolis. Andrea and I 
have actually been working together for almost two years in data visualization. And I would call this journalism going into overdrive now, using data that goes beyond the market research um, into the realm of storytelling and using maps and to tell stories and, and finding interesting ways to go beyond you know, the, the, the way the story um, is often told in print. And finally, at the end, we have Manfred Becker, whose project is entirely in the realm of online entertainment. It's where I call big data meets documentary, which is what I think you guys are all here to, to learn a little bit more about. But at least you get to see the whole evolution. So I'm going to just pass it over to Noah and uh, get started. There we go. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Karen. So as Karen mentioned, uh, I'm Noah Ganner. I'm the CEO of BookNet Canada. Just a really brief intro to BookNet Canada for those of you who don't know who we are. We are a not-for-profit, cross-sector book industry, technology, supply chain, and data uh, company organization. So we work with retailers, public libraries, publishers, wholesalers to help with the digital disruption in the book, uh, the book sphere industry in Canada. So we run a bunch of uh, projects, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the purple one, the research and education area down here. But we also run and build most of our own uh, industry solutions. So we collect um, all of the point of sale data for books across Canada every week, and we build the Globe and Mail bestseller list and do things like that. So that's the big data side of stuff that Karen was talking about. We also aggregate metadata for all of the books published in Canada, and we do a lot of consumer research, and I'm gonna to touch a little bit on all of that today. So I'm gonna talk about data visualization, but at the same time, I'm gonna show you some real data about what's going on in the book industry. So um, why data visualization, or why is BookNet interested in data visualization? Well, Karen's touched a little bit on this already. Um, for us, it, it started about 10 years ago or so when uh, the data part of our industry was really needed to measure things. Um, and what we wanted to do was do away with this, anic data, right? So we hear all the time from media or from even people in our industry, and I'm sure it's the same in your, in your sector, sectors, that uh, you know, this thing is happening. Well, what's the data that backs that thing up? Or how do we measure what's actually changing? I know the OMDC is very interested in that. So we're really trying to dispel anic data. We are also very, very interested in content marketing. So I just popped the definition of content marketing up. And what does that mean in our, in our sphere? Well, I've said that we're an industry-run organization and we give data back to our members. And uh, we also sell much of our services. So we're always interested in acquiring um, new users or new members. And so we use data visualization and data in general as a content marketing tool. So we put a lot of free stuff out with the idea of gaining sales somewhere down the line. I'm sure it's something that's very familiar to many of you. But at the same time, we're also interested in giving away the data. And I kind of hate the term big data, I'll say it right away, because my big data might be completely different from your big data. Your big data may be one Excel spreadsheet with a lot of rows in it, and that's what you have to work with. Or it may be terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data like we have. Um, what I'm more interested in is the data visualization side of this. But we want to inform our industry. And so we give out data in lots of different ways. And one of the ways we do that is in through, through visualization. And so I'll talk a little bit about what, what data and what visualization. So we're, I think that BookNet's a little bit different, as Karen mentioned. We're mostly interested in the market research aspect of this. What is happening with the book industry in Canada? We, as she mentioned, it doesn't show up very well here, but we build dashboards. We monitor the sales of books um, from every, or most retailers across Canada every week for every single ISBN. You may or may not know this about the book industry, but the book industry in Canada has about 11 million active items at any one given time in Canada that are selling, or maybe selling, hopefully selling, um, or sitting on a shelf anyway. Um, and so we build dashboards to monitor that. And this is a data visualization tool. It's fairly basic. We all know about dashboards. I can't show the interactivity here. But you can, this calendar widget here, you can draw, you can drag back and forth and see different time frames, and you can cut, slice and dice. So all of our users have access to this at the title level for every single book that is selling in Canada, or just about every single book that's selling in Canada. We also do other dashboards. So this is ebook sales uh, for a particular publisher in Canada. This is units at the top per day. Um, this is the category build for the different categories that we have in Canada. So the Fiction General, for the past seven days, they sold about 4,000 books in that category. They can use this to measure, measure themselves against the other publishers in the marketplace too. So they can see in our print book panel, 
and our print book reporting, massive data warehouse, everyone can see everyone. So Penguin can see, well, Random House is the same thing. Penguin can see Simon & Schuster. All the different publishers can see one another's data so they can see what's selling and what's not. These are all clickable. It's total data visualization stuff you can click through. Maybe fairly primitive, but very effective for our users. We also produce a lot of reports that use data visualization, and this may be of interest to a few people in this room. This is a report we did on movie tie-ins. So all the solid colored lines there are the book versions of this, uh, of Dear John, that we're selling over time. And then the dotted line coming down there is when the film was released, and then the box office numbers for that film on the other axis. So we do a lot of this kind of research too, and publishers really like this. This is uh, equating what happens to book sales when a movie tie-in happens. So we do a lot of that kind of stuff too, pretty simple. Uh, so real data, and Karen and I uh, were talking about this earlier this morning. So this is book sales in Canada by our top level categories over the last five years, six years. So the green line is our fiction category, the blue line is the nonfiction category, and the red line is juvenile sales. And so Karen and I were talking about this this morning. Uh, she made a hypothesis without knowing the data that uh, children's book sales were going up. The data backs that up. Children's book sales are taking a bigger portion of the market than they ever have in the past. So over the last kind of six years, it's grown almost 10% of the market share. And then we do some visualization stuff like this. So uh, I've put three lines on this graph. These are print book sales, by the way. Well, I kind of gave it away. Um, what I was trying to do, and there's the causation correlation thing here, this is when the different ebook platforms launched in Canada. So you can see that the adult fiction categories are going down in print book sales as the ebook entrants are coming into the market. There's probably not a direct correlation, but there's some causation for sure. We also do some simple ones like this. I wanted to jump through to this one. So this is a, a kind of a heat map. So this is showing uh, for all the people who read a book in Canada last year that answered our surveys or from our consumer research, how they relate to things that they do otherwise. So closer to the yes side means it correlates more strongly. The bigger the dot, the more respondents actually said that. So people who read a book last year, it might not be a surprise that they correlate very strongly to people who go to movies from our consumer research. They also listen to classical music and they read movie listings and reviews in the newspaper. There's tons of dots there, I just pulled a few out. So this is a good data visualization, allows some correlation stuff. Uh, people who Read tend to, and going towards the no-axis people who read, um, also tend to watch TV less. Which probably isn't a big surprise, but here's data that actually backs that up. And this is the exact same thing, just looking at it a different way. Did you read a book in the last year? These people identify as readers, radio listeners, comedy film watchers, credit card users, canvas bag shoppers. They love the arts, and they love olive oil. <laughs> Don't know why, but there you go. Um, we do data visualizations like this. This is a heat map of the market in Canada. So each big box is a subject category. Each little box inside the big box is an actual title. So it's showing market share. This fiction box, that's the share of the whole market in Canada that fiction holds. Juvenile fiction is at the top, biography, autobiography, we go all the way down to gardening in the top corner there. What this big box is saying is that the fifth bestseller in the country was in fiction and it had about that percentage of the market. We do do a lot of infographics, as Karen mentioned, and we do this uh, back to the content marketing thing. This is really a content marketing exercise. We get a call um, almost daily. We get a bunch of calls a week from media, national media, looking for information on the book sales, so on book sales in Canada, so we try and give them out, give them that data. We also push these infographics out to give some bite-sized piece of information to people so that they maybe can use it in their articles or put it on their blogs. So we do a lot of these. Um, we do them for romance book buyers. We do all of this in-house. These are some of our most hit social media areas. We can get thousands and thousands of hits a month on our, our website from these infographics. A couple of them have gone viral, and we've got seven and 8,000 hits in a month on these infographics. So we do all of these in-house based on the data we have. We did this one to support indie booksellers. We did this one for fun, but this is correlating the ability to pick up a date um, by nerd category in a bookstore. So um, if you're looking for a hacker or a collector or a gamer, these get tons of hits. And uh, it really allows us to get people to come back to BookNet. It's a brand awareness thing too. We really create a good brand by giving these things out. And they're fairly simple, I'm gonna talk through. So taking it home, my last few minutes, um, to give you some tactical notes that you can take away and, and work on. So we use a lot of Excel. 
I think everyone uses a lot of Excel. It's a hate and love thing. Um, we do really a lot of work with Excel, so I think you all know that. If you don't know what Excel is, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> we, also, we also do really a lot with PictoChart. So I don't know if you know PictoChart. It's an infograph creator. Um, it's, on, it's all online in the cloud. It's quite easy to use and, and do, and they have templates and things like that. So we do a lot, and you can start for free. And even the paid subscriptions are not very expensive. Pretty easy to do. We, uh, I use a lot of RStats. Are people familiar with RStats? No? So RStats is a completely open source and free statistical analysis platform. So this is maybe a little bit deeper dive than some people need to go do, but if you have large data sets and you're doing any analysis of market interpretation or things like that, you should look at R. R is used throughout the statistical analysis sphere and through uh, a lot of data visualizations. They have tons of data visualization plugins. That heat map I showed came out of R. So you can play around with it, it's free. There's tons of online courses, it's really, really powerful. Free, I said that, I think. We also use SPSS software from IBM, um, a huge data, analyst, data analyzing platform. We do really a lot of uh, consumer surveying. So every year we do a massive consumer survey of buying habits in Canada for books, thousands and thousands and thousands of purchases. In fact, over two years we did 24,000 book purchases and all the consumer input that goes into that. And so we put that into SPSS and we use that to analyze it in a tool called Survey Reporter. It's really, really good. They have some infographics about why you should use SPSS. I do not work for IBM. Um, and just some reading stuff, if you're really into this kind of, kind of thing. Uh, flowing data is uh, focused on our stats, but is a visualization um, website or blog. It's a really good blog. It's really well known. Um, here they had a thing about visualizations for asteroids that might hit Earth and things like that. Flowing data is a good one. Another great one is storytelling with data is something we're always, always interested in doing, um, the great pie debate. Um, and then on the content marketing side, because the infographic stuff really hits on the content marketing side. If you don't know the Car Content Marketing Institute, you should know the Content Marketing Institute. Go to their website. They have great infographics and articles on uh, how to use your content to drive your brand and sell more. And lastly, I would be remiss, because I'm a, from BookNet Canada, without leaving you with some books that you should pick up. And these are the books I would highly recommend. If you don't know Edward, Edward Tuft and his books, these four books, Beautiful Evidence, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information and Visiting Information and Visual Explanations, you should go and get these books. The library has them. They're really good. He is one of the fathers of data visualization. And these are kind of incredible tomes. And buy the books. Thank you. Great. Next up, Andrea. Um, you can go up and I'll explain a little bit. I'll, let me give you a little bit of backdrop as Andrea sort of sets up. So th this is a, a project. Um, a couple of years ago, I was asked uh, by some charitable institutions to try to figure out, uh, come up with some interesting solutions, communication solutions for a lot of the uh, not-for-profit groups that they were um, working with. And when I came in to look at it, this is what sort of got, set me off on data viz um, elements. I was, it was clear that it would be very hard to try to help all of these different not-for-profit groups get articles in uh, you know, newspapers or um, Susan Ormason to write about it or to put it on CBC. And I said, you know, I think it would be better if we collectively took your data and started finding ways to tell stories collectively about your industry. Um, and so this is what it all began. And so what Andrea is going to talk about a little is one project that we started with Laidlaw Foundation and youth arts groups trying to measure and show the cultural impact of youth arts groups in Toronto. So Andrea, take it away. Thank you, Karen. So in order to do this, um, the data that we had came in from the various youth arts groups and spreadsheets. It also came in Word documents, which is really interesting. Sometimes you'll find that. Um, and we were using postal codes, information on programs, partnerships, whatever else we could extract from that data. So taking a look at that data, if we could go to our next slide here, I guess that's me. <laughs> All right, so here's a small sample of what some of that data looked like. 
kind of all over the plat all over the map. And as you can see, our first job was to clean that data. And that's kind of the most important thing if you're working with data visualization. You've got to have nice, clean data to work with. Um, so we removed some errors, we grouped data sets, and we had to make sure that our apples were with apples and our oranges with oranges in order to really tell the different components of this story. So once we did that, we were able to use different diagram techniques to tell different layers of that story. And it looks like this. So we took this data here, and we made our interactive, which is this project here. And to show that impact, sorry, one second here, we'll just take a look at one of our youth groups. And very quickly, using Mapbox, we can see how Manifesto, even though they're located downtown, they have events all across the city. And we can see that with all of these other groups too, Arts for Children and Youth, they have a huge impact across the city. These are all of their programs. So you can very, very quickly see that impact. And then what we did was we used Leaflet to sort of collect all of that information and to make this total impact map where we could see all of those youth groups together collectively. And this was kind of a cool little, whoops. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, you can scroll over and see collectively all 12 of those youth groups, which is kind of a neat little interactive. Um, now, displaying the sponsors was a little bit more difficult. It didn't really, a map didn't really show that information very well. So what we did instead was we used an interactive chart. So very quickly, you can click on either a sponsor or a youth group and see those relationships much easier than on a map or any other format. So that's kind of where we went with this. It's very important to choose the right graphic to show the information that you're trying to, trying to tell. Um, the final element of this project is art trails, going from macro to micro data. And these are the individual stories of some of the artists and their work. And we were able to map their story with their journey. So you can very quickly see, uh, whoops, we'll just jump to some end ones. It is pretty cool, yeah, and their journey along with their artwork. And it's, it's their story too, which is really cool. You can click on some of these other ones. And they're very, some of them, you know, sort of stay in, in Toronto, and then some of them really branch out and travel all over the world. Anyway, and that's sort of how we were able to show the cultural impact of these 12 youth arts groups in Toronto. Actually, Dan, do you want to? Participation sure. Oh, participation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This was, um, we were able to track participation and audience attendance um, through the different postal codes. So you can see, for instance, very quickly, M5A, they've got a lot of, um, with their events, collectively, the youth arts groups have a lot of um, audience members in the M5A area. M5G participation is quite high. Um, you can quickly see where those postal codes are. Yeah. So the point of this was also trying to figure out when we first started and we were looking at all the various tools like Google. Google has those what I call the teardrops, and if you have too much data, it completely you know. <coughs> how many maps have you seen where you click on it and it's all the the dots are so collected on a particular map it doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't tell a story. So part of what we were trying to do was find different ways to tell. Um, dense data without overwhelming someone who goes through it. So this was, I think, a really ingenious way of doing it, that you could click on a particular postal code and, and get the data of, of the youth arts groups collectively across the, the country, on, on or collectively the youth arts groups in the city in a particular postal code, rather than having that data all over the postal codes, which wouldn't have made a lot of sense. So I think that you know these are, again, the interesting thing in the evolution now of data visualization is, is really trying to find very interesting graphic solutions to um, telling a lot of data and a lot of different stories. What's different in terms of what we're doing, in terms of what NOAA has done, NOAA's doing what I would call the 2D infographics, which are wonderful and shareable. This is much more engaging. So this entire um, 
it, piece of data actually was embedded in the Toronto Star website so that people could come in. There was a stories written by the journalist. So people came to it through the story and then were able to click through themselves at any point, like what, you know, which arts group they were interested in. Um, which, you know, what funders were there, what, what youth artists. And we also had attached, you might want to do, I don't know if the video will work, Andrea, as well. Sure, and just from a social, if you go back to the home for the... Oh, um, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. The other thing was, how do you drive, um, for content marketing, how do you drive people to these sites? So we worked with Manifesto and created... Um, a music video that went out to all the music community, and then we told them to drive them to the, the Toronto Star website. So again, this is an interesting way of um, telling stories about 12 different youth arts groups in the city, telling a lot about their data, collectively their impact in the city, as opposed to trying to tell individual stories and do traditional, reach out to journalists traditionally. Suddenly, this is on the website. It's on all of their websites now. It's with the Toronto Star. It's shareable. It's interactive. It's engaging. And you know, we're hoping that we go the next step. This was youth arts groups. How wonderful would it be to do it with all arts groups across the city? So this is really what I would call more of a pilot project at this point. So, and that's it, I think, for this one. We'll move on now to Manfred. Okay. So let me preface, good morning, let me preface my observations by publicly thanking our Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, for his dedication and his commitment. By now, with a different crowd, I would have had a hiss or a boo. <laughs> you guys are very polite or very conservative. Uh, but I actually mean what I said. Um, in 2009, the federal government dedicated a big chunk of money, $110 million, towards a situation which affects all of us. Actually, we all know about it, but we don't even see it anymore, which I think are the worst crises to be had, which we'll encounter on our way down to the subway because there's going to be somebody lying across the pavement. It's called homelessness. The majority of people who are homeless have mental health issues. It gobbles up about... $1.4 billion in hard-earned taxpayers' money, to quote our former mayor. The UN gave Canada a failing grade a few years ago for not having in, uh, a comprehensive housing and mental health strategy, one of the last, if not the last, industrial countries at all. So there's a problem. It's not getting any better. What to do about it? So um, the federal government in 2007 founded what's called the Mental Health Commission of Canada. In 2009, they put the money inside and said, how can we change the situation? They had to analyze what there is. The problem starts with the concept itself. Uh, under conventional wisdom basically dictates, if you're homeless, we say, clean yourself up, get a job, beat your addiction, and then maybe you can afford a home. Problem was it wasn't working because the numbers were increasing. I think the latest figure was like 150,000 people in Canada at any given time, which is a shameful statistics. So Housing First was founded, and it had some small pilot projects down in the US and also in Canada and Toronto, uh, but there was never a comprehensive study being done. And it turns con conventional victim, uh, uh, wisdom on its head and basically says, here are the keys, we'll give you a home, you can close your door, no strings attached, and see what happens. A, does it make sense for the participant? B, does it make sense for that taxpayer's um, hard-earned dollars? So um, what was started in 2009 was the at-home study, $110 million, and what happened was they took 2,200 and a few participants, people who are homeless and uh, have mental health issues off the street, well, actually, no, 1,200 of them were given a home for five years. No strings attached. All they had to do is hopefully stay there and let in a social worker once a week who will, who will visit them and talk to them. And um, a researcher um, to come in and, and do research uh, interviews for an extended period, hour or two, to see how their life had changed, that they reconnected with families. How were they dealing with their addictions? Was there a prospect of a job? How did the neighbors respond? So the National Film Board came on board to observe this, this whole experiment, which at that point was the largest social experiment of its kind in the world. Quite a nice superlative to have. And I was one of the directors brought in to do a series of web documentaries for the, the um, 
uh, Toronto site. There were four other sites, Winnipeg, Vancouver, Moncton, and Montreal. And I also advised on the website, which I'm about to start. And um, it was designed by a company in Montreal, Departement, and was created in Flash. And I was able to kind of give some advice on how to build it that people will stay with it. Because in film, they used to say, well, you've got two minutes to grab the audience. And if you don't, then move on to the Golf Channel. In, on the internet, I think it's done somewhere down to five seconds or 10 seconds. Three, okay, so times have changed even further. So this is basically the portal, the opening of it. So there are the five cities. Each had their kind of focus. Vancouver was substance abuse. Winnipeg, Aboriginal communities. Toronto was racialized immigrant groups. Montreal, the Francophonie. And Moncton, rural homelessness. Um, it was an issue of focus and perspective. For us, it was really important not to make this a kind of bleeding heart, liberal, hand-wringing, moralizing kind of thing, but to, to speak in a language which I count the phrase like, what would the National Post reader think? Like, where is our tax money actually going? And uh, so therefore, it wasn't all a perspective from the participant, the homeless person, but we also did uh, short documentaries with landlords, with family members, uh, with, with neighbors, and to try to understand that if this is a problem of society, well, it affects more than just the one person. And the other thing was, the importance of what film is good at is to, to give emotional experiences by, by doing a portrait of five minutes, 10 minutes, 45 minutes. These ones are between four and five minutes long. The key was how to take, which was hopefully a meaningful emotional experience for the audience to meet an individual and translate it into more of an aerial perspective of what does it all mean. So uh, here are the numbers. The, the design took, uh, took kind of guidance from, from neural networks. Uh, the colors are obvious to get out of the stigma of mental illness. Uh, you go into the cities and you learn a bit more about um, the situation. Uh, here are some statistics. I'm not going to read them off. You can do that yourself. And then you can switch back and do it for all the cities. So um, I will do now what documentaries should be doing is to shut up and let the subject speak for themselves. I'm going to show you one of those short segments. Um, her name is Teresa, which we created. Um, it's just about four minutes long. Hey, Harriet, it's Bushra. Just want to let you know we're on the road. And just one question. Hold on one sec, sorry. Three-point turn at an intersection. That can't be good. Hope is to get them housing and then eventually deal with their problems. And I think really it's up to the client whether they want to work on their struggles. And if they're not there yet, we have to meet them there. It can't be our goal. Hey, Teresa, it's Bushra. Teresa, I just want to let you know. Teresa, what's going on? I wanted to check in with you, see how you're doing. I'm evicted tomorrow. That's okay. Oh, okay. Dear, did you hear that? It's okay. I'm evicted. Yoo-hoo. 
No, it's okay that because you have a good team that will be able to support you through all of it. Of course you will. Now you know where I'm going to be sleeping. Either Queen and Jameson Corner beside Tim Hortons or Cecil Park. Queen and This Jameson. is not a joke. What about in front of the police station that you still live in? Uh, I'm trespassed. Okay, fair enough. I mean, you've got two other places. Can you hurry up? So where are you off to? Oh, I'm going up to beg. I'm going to work. Up to Tim Hortons there? Yeah, it's my job. Have you had any, like, symptoms this morning? Like, just what do you think? Can I help you with your bag? I gotta get out of here. Fair enough. I can't deal with this. Can we join you at least? You are entitled to a home like anybody else, regardless of what your um, history is, what your background is, and what you are struggling with. So it's not conditional. Well, you and I are going to have our coffee. It's a date. All right. You guys can hang too, man. Okay, this is my living room. Hi. Is this my 15 minutes of fame? How are you doing, love? Anyways, no, it's all my fault. I got evicted because um, I let a lot of wrong people in there. I take the responsibility because I'm the tenant. Like, if I was my neighbors, I would not want to live next to me. Yeah. Because I don't have long. You know that. You don't have long? I don't believe that. I have bone cancer. You have bone cancer? When did you find out? Three months ago. They wanted to admit me, and I go, no, I, I just kind of took off. Which is really mean to them because Mount Sinai is wicked awesome. They're but, fantastic. But that's how you cope, right? Like when things I are very away. scary, you bolt, which I is bolt. what you know. But I will get this looked at. Yeah. I will. Because I know when I do get really sick, I'll go. The only thing that pushes me is pain. The only thing that pushes you is pain. That's right. This job, you kind of get desensitized in terms of shock value. I don't know how much of help she'll accept from us. A lot of people hear the word cancer and they think it's a death sentence. That's but, true. But it's not necessarily the case for everyone. It's not oh, we provide housing and their problems are solved and we save them. Don't get burned out, girl. No, I won't. So many of your team has. No, we're okay. In fact, that's where the work starts. It's basically starting to plant the seed right there before getting the housing. What keeps you going? What keeps me going? I never really thought about that. So then um, you get some additional information. Uh, there's a pull quote. Uh, these are the numbers again, like how do we get through to the National Post readers if you say it takes a thousand bucks to spend a night in a, in a hospital versus $55 at home. Seems to make sense to house people. Um, it gives you then cross references to other stories in other cities. So overall, there are about 50. Uh, from the five different uh, centers. Uh, the website also offers a kind of bird's eye perspective, which is a, a, a short 10-minute film uh, describing everything. Um, there's a blog of scientists and, and um, um, uh, journalists, which is on the site. And then, of course, it's all about the numbers at the end and the results. So uh, after five years, did it work out? So you look at... Um, all participants, and you can see yourself, you could argue that it doesn't really work out because housing people still cost more money than, than uh, not housing people on pure monetary uh, terms, even though hospital costs have gone way down from twelve dollars to $9,000. Um, the big one is, of course, um, the, the support. And what I realized in the experience is it's not just the four walls. It's 
Actually, it's not that at all. It's about human contact. I've visited people who were in their four walls for the first time in decades, and they looked at me thinking, what am I doing here? They felt like strangers in a, in a, in a, on a different planet. It was for them being able to connect to other human beings. So the lessons I learned from this all is that we can't just pay off problems. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue which, which has to grow through education and, and a kind of level of consciousness which the society doesn't quite have yet. Um, so here, the numbers basically speak against uh, doing it, but then if you translate it to high-use um, high, uh, participants, which are the people who use the most uh, resources, the ones who find themselves in jail or in the hospital more than often, about 10% of the group itself look at the difference. So you could argue saying, well, in monetary terms, it makes sense, it doesn't really make sense, but the, in, in, implicit in, in the t statistics for me is how do you measure success? How do you measure change? Because if you go to um, the other categories which are listed here, uh, certain things are obvious, like um, if you're housed, there's no need for you to go to emergency shelter. You're not going to be, um, which is obvious as well, um, in conflict with, with the, the, the law. Interesting fact is the more you try to solve one issue, you create another because if you have a home, you have a kitchen, you need to eat. Well, where are you going to get the food from if you don't have the money? So you go to food banks, which means increasing the pressure on them as well. So um, here it is. Uh, if you still want more in terms of information, um, there is, of course, the good old um, print, which is the Mental Health Commission's report. But um, this is how we try to do both, is, is to give meaningful experiences in using film, documentary media, and also translating it to data which can be used and kind of shaped around uh, creating an argument. And I think the, what the project has done is, is help to write a policy, not just for this country, but for industrialized worlds uh, for the future in terms of having come up with an idea, put resources to it, and, and learn from uh, its lessons. Thanks, Manfred. So what you can see by data visualization, you can actually work with extremely complex data and ideas, which I think you can't normally do in a straight print or television story. So I think that's what's so exciting now about this kind of merging between data and, uh, and entertainment, if you will. Um, so I think I'll first start a little bit um, about tools. I'm assuming that the folks in the room here want to learn a little bit if they want to about data visualization and how to get into it. Now, I want to first ask you a little bit about tools. Now, um, you talked a lot about um, you know, some, some tools that are on the market. Given that I think some folks here might want to know what might be free out there, what, yeah. what's open source, um, can you talk a little bit about well, those? The ones, uh, the ones that I mentioned, our stats is a great one for heavy lifting of data. It's free. There's, there's courses. Everything is available online. It's got a huge, huge community. Um, so that's a that's a great one. Um, we use Peak to Chart. We use Google a lot too, <laughs> counter to some of the discussion. But uh, they, Google has some great uh, tools for doing data mapping and also data sets. That's the other thing too is that, and Andrea touched on this, the cleaning of the data and the getting the data ready to tell the story you need to to tell is often way more time consuming and dollar consuming um, than is the actual presentation of the data. Um, and so. Getting good, clean data sets is really, really important. And sometimes those data sets are going to be your own data sets, and sometimes they're going to be data sets that are readily available. So um, Toronto has lots of data sets. Toronto government has lots of data sets available. Google has lots of data sets. So look for data that can help inform your story that's free and open. Um, there's lots of that data out there. Uh, there's lots and lots of web-based tools that are either free or close to free for doing infographics and doing data visualization and some simple data visualization. Google even has some data visualization tools that where you can upload your data set and get back um, data maps, or you can lay it on a on onto geography, and it may not be perfect, but it gets you part a part of the way there. So there's lots of good free tools. You just need to look around and blogs, tons and tons of blogs. This is such a booming um, area of focus that it's out there all the time. Great, thanks. Well, Andrea, you did a mix and match of different tools. Can you talk a little bit about the tools that you used? And, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah um, uh, well, I, I used Mapbox quite a bit 
um, Google is, is, is pretty good too, but for making sort of a more custom experience, we used Mapbox in addition to Leaflet, which is a really nice complement to Mapbox. Um, and what I've sort of been dabbling in to recently is D3, which is really exciting and really cool. And um, I'm hoping to sort of incorporate D3 with another um, language or another script, Angular, to do sort of live interactive data, which I think would be really cool. And there are, there's tons of um, free software out there. There's tons of tutorials. Um, but yeah, those are some of my favorite ones to do custom Customization. What's D, why is D3 so good now? Everyone's talking D3, D3. Oh, boy. What can I say about D3? Uh, it's just um, like taking your data and giving it steroids. Um, it just, so you could take a data set and rather than um, writing the HTML code for your charts and trying to do styling and stuff like that, um, D3 will actually pull that data and allow you to manipulate it and create some really cool interactive things with it directly rather than having to, I guess, use sort of all, it's just, it's amazing. Check it out. <laughs> I don't know what to But now it's are really those how, are free or are yeah, they, absolutely those are free they are. as well? Yeah, okay, D3 so. is open source. But you need to be probably a soft, have some software background, right? Uh, so that's sort of the it helps. With, yeah, yeah, it definitely helps. Um, but there are great tutorials on it. Uh, so yeah, you you can pick it up without having any programming experience. It's it is uh, to do, really do some of the really complex things. Though I, I would uh, encourage you to at least know JavaScript or yeah, works with that. Now, Manfred, how do you're a documentary filmmaker, so you're not a data geek necessarily. And never will be. <laughs> so can you tell me the process of how you worked with the, the team and, and actually came up with visuals and, you know, how, how the integration between the documentary and the mm -hmm. data viz folks? Yeah, documentaries really pushed journalists aside and saying we're not about numbers and data. We are much more closer to the, the drama folks. We want to create meaningful emotional experiences and then make people think. And it doesn't quite go that way. I've, I've learned, for me, it was a big learning experience to, to tell stories through numbers. And it's, at the end, all about creating a response from the audience. So if you say, what about $1,000 in jail or, or, or the hospital per night versus $50 at home, that, for me, is a very persuasive argument to endorse or embrace a model. And you can, you can build both in tandem. So I was working with people who are half my age and grew up with the internet. I'm from a school of the National Film Board where you told linear stories and you had 45 minutes or an hour and, and you got them onto television. The world is changing. So, so to be able to basically feed both worlds, um, it was kind of a cross-pollination between the new thinkers, the department folks who are in, in their 20s and really fast in their way of visualization and us slower older folks who say, no, no, you've got to look at somebody's face for a minute before you really get anything. Um, it was a, was a creative dialogue. Mm. Interesting. I think we're already moving to Q&A, so is there any questions out there from folks? I was just saying that I noticed on the shot of the documentary how there was a crack in the windshield of the car and how that probably pulled on your heartstrings so hard more than any piece of data. It's a whisper that speaks more than information. It's like that's the equivalent of looking into somebody's eyes. Mm -hmm. And I think that all of the information and everything is a confirmation of what you see in those eyes. And mm -hmm. that's what data is. It's a confirmation of what we know in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And if you can't follow your heart, you can't do data. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm. That's what I was thinking. Thank you. Aries always says what she's thinking. <laughs> so forget the pie charts. Well, no, no it just it, it validates the eye, right? Yeah, life is all of the above. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um, Manfred, I liked and appreciated what you said about cross-pollinization, <laughs> situation we all find ourselves in. I'm curious from all of you, though, is uh, what have you learned about how much data p 
people can absorb in visual ways. Like some of the things that I saw now, I'm not on a website and I'm not clicking my own stuff, but is there, do you have something that can inform us about how much we can absorb in website data? What's the, um, what's the best way? I come from television, obviously, where a simple storyline was the way to grab people, so it's a completely different world. Well, just briefly, what we did is we, as you have test audiences for your movies, you get test audience beta testers for your site. And if their eyes roll or they go to sleep after three minutes or they say, I'm lost here, then, and we had that experience in the beginning. Remember all these bouncing balls? And we said, well, isn't this about human beings? Why is all this dark space here? And why are the human beings so small? And then when you had to mouse over them, sometimes you have to find them. It turned into a little game. So we had to slow down the pace. So the people will tell you if it, if it works for them or not. And you, you sit them down and you try to separate them. You don't just have computer geeks or, or, or people who are very familiar with, with, with giving feedback. You have general audiences. Who, this is who you want to get. And then you, you ask them questions. What worked for you? What, what, what's left after two minutes? How long, how long did you want to stay here? How long did you feel you have to stay because we asked you to? The audience is always right. I think from our standpoint, we're, part of our products are focused at a very concentrated, mostly just book industry professionals, but we do exactly what Manfred says. We do extensive usability testing where we sit down with different cla classes of users and say what data works for you here. And it's, it's time consuming, but we should all be customer focused and we have to be customer focused with our data too. So we do a lot of that. We do some blind surveying where we actually watch people using our website and our data from behind a firewall, right? So we can see, they don't know we're watching, but we can see them using the data. And we can see where their eyes go even, and we can see where they click. And we use all of that to inform what is the level. But you know, there is, that's a very good question because you can give out too much. That heat map I showed of the different categories and stuff, I love that. I would not put that in an infographic going out as it is. I would take it apart and, and present the data too much because it's a very interesting research tool, but it's not a general consumption tool. It would just overload almost anyone, right? I had to explain it for almost five minutes. That's not good data visualization. So, um, so it is, there is a constant balance. But we always try and involve our users or our consumers or whoever it is and, and put, put them into the process whenever we can. So. Yeah, there's also a couple of tools out there for um, sort of getting an idea of what are the best uh, graphics to use with your visuals, like um, complexdiagrams.com. Um, I think his name is Noah Ilinsky. Um, he sort of talks about um, if you're using quantitative data, what type of chart were you use to really best um, illustrate that? Because our brains are very visual. You know, we look at a spreadsheet and we just bleh. But very quickly, we can turn that into an interactive and get that message across very, very quickly. So yeah, there's um, colorbrewer2.org is another really good site if you want to use uh, color matching and things like that. So yeah, there's lots of studies on it. Absolutely. Yep. Hi. Um, I think you had asked us to introduce ourselves earlier for questions, so I'm going to do that. Um, my name is Jacqueline. I'm from the Shield School of Business, doing the MBA in Arts and Media Administration. Um, and I wanted to ask a data question about your data. Um, in terms of uh, what you've put out there, have you noticed anything interesting in terms of, you spoke a lot about engagement and interactivity, about what demographics and specific groups you've gotten the most engagement and interactivity from for each of your projects? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I remember when, when the, the, I know how to launch a movie, but when you launch a website, what do you do? You make some press release. Um, the film board had a publicist working on it, and I was on a couple of radio shows in the morning, and then I called in to the headquarters in Montreal and said, how did it go? And they said, well, we really peaked. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, <laughs> we, we had like 100 plus hits. And, then, and then, then it went down to 30 again per day. And I got all depressed for a moment. And then I thought, well, if you multiply 30 by 365 by 10, it adds up. And then, of course, there's a question of quality of, 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 um, of people who are onto the site and how long they're actually staying. But um, for me, being a novice to this world, I had a lot of unanswered questions about how that is being tracked. And I know that Nielsen ratings are highly questionable as well, but how do you measure 
what people do, how long they stay. If you look at the, the blog, uh, a lot of entries had zero replies. And you think this is really a key thought here. And it's important. So how come nobody responds? That doesn't mean that nobody reads them. They might, they might turn into something else. I just think there's a lot of work to be done, data-oriented work, in order to track what people do. No, yeah. probably is a pretty good example. Yeah, I, I think from our standpoint, it's maybe a little bit different for us because a lot of our data and data tools are behind firewalls, so they're not general. They're not general consumer facing. But uh, you know, we collect so much data. We collect big data on how people are using our big data, yeah. right? And then you need a whole other person <laughs> to analyze that, that big data and a whole other suite of tools, right? So this all takes time, but it's really, really valuable. And it's especially valuable when you need to gain an insight, right? This isn't just data for data's sake. This is an insight. So we do chart who's using our data behind our firewalls because it's all user-based. You have to log in so we know who you are. Um, you know, it's mostly technical savvy supply chain people that are, that are looking at the book data. For our general kind of facing infographics and stuff, I talked a little bit about the metrics. I'm happy to pass those along. But we get really a lot from out of the country, surprisingly enough. When we publish infographics that we think are of a Canadian focus, they tend to get picked up all over the place. And because I think people are looking for insights into our market from, else, from elsewhere, right? So we did an Alice Monroe study last year, I think, which when Alice Monroe won her award, we did how her books were selling around the world. And we partnered with Nielsen and got that data. And that report was publicly available. It was picked up in Turkey and in Indonesia in their daily times. And we had thousands and thousands of downloads, 7,000 downloads of that report, mostly from out of the country, because we all know that Alice Monroe affects book sales. But outside of the country, that might be news. So um, it's hard, as Manfred said, to marry the two things of usage and, and the data sets together sometimes. We try. These debates go on all the yeah. time. <laughs> Click rates versus yeah, exactly. engagement. Um, you know, in yeah. every there's trends into terms of what people think are most important, but it actually is a whole analytics looking at the analytics. And so we try and equate it to sales yeah. too. That might be yeah, surprising, sales. but yeah, <laughs> what's your business goals and stuff? So, anyways, or yeah. sorry, okay, <laughs> I have a nice one. Uh, it's a question for every one of you. Um, I, my name is Dan. I'm from Mark Media. Uh, it's about uh, the size of your teams and what kind of specialties do you require to create each one of your pro uh, projects. Um, sorry, mm, from uh, you know, Noah to Manfred, sure. from simple to complex. How many programmers, how many uh, visual oh, artists, do you have saw. data analysts? How big are these teams? Sure. We have, uh, we have 14 people at BookNet. Um, but we build and run all our own IP. So all of the products that we build uh, have massive back-end databases and all the front-end programs all done in-house. All our data analysis is done in-house. All our data collection is either contracted out or done in-house. So for 14 people, we do all of that and run all of those teams. So uh, we, we tend to hire, as Manfred might say, the younger <laughs> generation. Uh, most of our developers and tech people are of the younger generation. My background is that I was a, a as I was saying to Karen when I started, I'm a failed cartographer and GIS person. <laughs> so I was always into data and moved into consumer analytics. So I've always had a, a background in data. Um, and we try and hire people who are interested in data. That's one of our key, or digital anyway, but data for sure, and uh, are willing to play around. Playing is really, really important and not being afraid of like touching the data and, and looking at it. You may not always have an hypothesis you're trying to prove. So looking at the data to see if there's something consistent inside it is really, really important. Well, for DataViz Labs, it's primarily just Karen and I. Um, we have uh, brought on a couple of programmers and designers from time to time, but really it's just uh, a yeah. power team. team. <laughs> uh, these videos were created within a couple of days. Like you had one research visit. We shot what you saw in about an hour. It was edited for two days, but then you're dealing with the, 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 the National Health um, uh, commission, Mental Health Commission, and you're dealing with the National Film Board, which are two federal bodies, so there was a lot of bouncing back and forth. Um, Departement, which is a, a, a design studio in Montreal, I think have less than 50 employees, and it went fairly swiftly, maybe because it was a private company and they knew their stuff. You just need to get approval because it's a touchy subject and it involves federal funds, so more time was actually spent 
shaping and it's rightfully so you've got to be right when you go out there and say how do you deal with that and what what consequences does it have because you deal with 2500 people human lives and what do you do after five years do you say thank you very much for being a guinea pig back on the street so since then the government has dedicated 600 million dollars to house keep housing people so um, that's why most time was spent trying to get it right in terms of language and and data representation there's a bunch of questions. I think they want to wrap up shortly. Can they do a couple more? Or? Okay. Hello. <clears throat> My name is Zifra, and I'm a filmmaker. I've worked with the NFP also a little bit. Um, and I am interested in uh, marketing for film these days. I've been a lot into like digital marketing and all the new tools. Uh, one of the things I notice is that a lot of people make their own data. How do you trust it? Like, there are some companies that are serious. They, they go on the street, they do some research and stuff like that. But with the internet, there are so many people who just output shit. And I, I use that word on purpose because they make it up. So how do you trust all these different sources before you even start visualizing them? You don't trust them. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> you have to be extremely careful. I mean, with with us taking a bath and data and images every morning, it just becomes meaningless. And, and with the level of sophistication of the, of the media, our, our ability to decipher it and decode it, our media literacy has be, stayed in the kind of stone age. I'm amazed how little people swim in it, but don't really know how to swim and survive. So I, I, that's why it's important to spend the time, get it right, and do a five-year study and involve federal agencies and have more have an ethicist on 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 staff and really think these things through and do beta testing don't trust what's out there i've been told we have to wrap up but we can you can grab one of us if you have a question i guess so anyways thanks so much everyone for coming thanks so much